I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Books Podcast, our series of conversations with authors with new books in the field. We're joined today by Jonah schulhofer Wool of uh, the Institute of Political Science at Leiden University and the author of the new book, Quagmire in Civil War, which just came out from Cambridge University Press. Uh, Jonah, thank you for joining us. Art, thank you very much for having me. So tell us about the book a little bit. Uh, what, what do you think the major contribution of the book is going to be? Why, why did you set out to write it? I was very interested in digging into an idea of how it was that the groups that are fighting in civil wars can become trapped in a war. Um, and this is something that uh, we can kind of understand intuitively about civil wars. There are some wars in which it looks like uh, for whatever reason, the armed groups that are fighting in them are unable to win the war, they're unable to negotiate to make a settlement, and the war just drags on. But there's something about that that's different from just a war that lasts for a very long time. It's about really this entrapment or stuckness of the war. And I wanted to investigate that. So, so what does that mean exactly, uh, uh, entrapment or being stuck? Uh, how, how do you conceptualize that differently from the duration? So I think the, the way you can think of it is that there are many kinds of factors that could lead to wars that are longer or shorter, uh, comparing across countries or even comparing across wars within a country. So um, to give you an example, um, you know, you're, you're calling from the United States. Let's take the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865. Was that a long war or a short war? And um, we can see that, you know, depending on what countries we compare it to, this might seem like a short war. Civil wars now on average um, are upwards of seven years or even nine years in length. Um, but on the other hand, for the people fighting the American Civil War, uh, this was a long conflict in terms of their expectations. And so um, we might say then that um, in you know, a country like the United States, there's a kind of length we would expect a war to take based on the geography of the country, based on the technology involved, based on many kind of underlying factors. But whether or not the groups that are fighting it are actually stuck in the war is something else. And that, um, what I want to do is separate these two concepts, the concept of duration from the concept of quagmire and say, um, maybe what doesn't concern us so much uh, in terms of civil wars is whether a war is long or short, but rather it's whether there are these um, factors that entrap belligerents. Now, so, what I was gonna say, it's what's very interesting about the way you've set, you set this up is that Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I see the two major things going on here are that you focus on the strategic choices made by actors um, at key moments, and you also really focus on the role of external powers in terms of shaping that strategic choice. So could you walk us through that a little bit? How does that work in terms of creating entrapment? Sure. And this was really my uh, main objective with the book's argument was to illustrate a kind of entrapment that could take place based on the interaction, as you've outlined, between foreign states as potential backers and the domestic belligerents in a war. I think um, 
for people particularly who study bureaucratic politics or domestic politics of foreign policy, there are kind of set of familiar reasons for entrapment and war that are, are separate from that interaction perspective. Mm -hmm. There are things about how leaders behave. There are um, aspects of interagency rivalries. There are domestic political considerations for uh, re-election. All of these things could be potential factors that actually uh, trap one side in a war or another. But what I started to think about was, is there something about the structure of the situation that the belligerents are facing that is actually producing quagmire? And here, um, the book makes the point that we, we kind of have a default view of entrapment and civil war that uh, it's based on underlying characteristics of a country or a war. So uh, the Obama administration, for example, had a view that uh, com conflicts in the Middle East are just incredibly complicated. They go back uh, centuries, if not longer. And these are something, these are conflicts the United States shouldn't get involved in because they're going to be overly complicated and then they're going to be something that will entrap everyone. And uh, by taking this strategic decision-making perspective, book actually outlines an argument that's uh, the opposite of that, which is to say it's based on the choices uh, that are being made by the foreign states, by the armed groups fighting the war, and it's these choices that lead to quagmire, not anything uh, particular about the nature of the country or the kind of war that's being fought. Now, you also focus on kind of the expected costs and the expected benefits that uh, both the foreign backers and the, uh, the, the internal actors have. Um, and you, you make some interesting analytical moves there in terms of how you conceptualize those costs and those interests. So how does that work in terms of the, in terms of your theory of quagmire? I make uh, two arguments about the mechanisms that can lead to quagmire. The first is one uh, focusing on the foreign backers that says that support from them uh, to the domestic belligerents. So um, for example, if we are looking at um, Syria uh, during the past decade, um, support that was going from uh, Iran to the al-Assad regime or support that was going from Saudi Arabia, from the United States to the Free Syrian Army, uh, to other groups in Syria, uh, this acts like a subsidy. And the problem with that is that it basically expands the range of conditions under which these groups will be willing to continue to fight the war. So we should expect to see those belligerents fighting in circumstances in which they wouldn't otherwise choose to continue to fight. And that's this first track that can push the quagmire. The second one, and I think for people outside of uh, the sort of small uh, set of uh, students of IR who look at war or uh, people who are very into rationalist studies of war, it's going to sound trivial, but it was actually a major difference from what existed in the literature. Typically, um, political scientists would just look at there being a cost of fighting that was kind of one type of cost that belligerents dealt with. 
Um, it was at one level. And what I thought about was that, you know, obviously in warfare, there are different ways that you can fight, and therefore there are different levels of cost that belligerents might pay that could be quite different from each other. So uh, just to run with the Syria example, um, when uh, the al-Assad regime is deciding to have a campaign to take back Aleppo from the rebels, this is a very costly type of action because it involves lots of troops on the ground, um, having to hold territory once you've taken it from the other side, and fighting to take territory then is a kind of higher cost type of fighting than any fighting in which you're uh, just involved in doing raids against the enemy or bombardment from a long distance, but one in which you're not actually trying to take territory. And as I mentioned, that sounds like a small kind of move, but the consequences are quite important because this means that there's a second mechanism leading to quagmire, basically a substitution from uh, higher cost territorial fighting into lower cost non-territorial fighting. And so in circumstances in which typically we'd expect a war to come to an end, in fact, it's possible for the groups that are fighting to shift the kind of fighting they're doing. And then one last part of that uh, before, we, before we move to the case study um, is how that plays out for the foreign backers. I mean, what's in it for them? Right. Um, what, what I think is uh, kind of tragic about the, the situation that the book is depicting is that in essence, um, when a civil war uh, turns into quagmire like this, nobody gets what they want. So um, I'm also trying to outline an argument for quagmire that's different from what you might hear normally about foreign interference in civil wars, which is that um, a country is trapped in conflict because that's what the foreign backers want, right? You'll hear some people argue that um, what uh, regional powers in the Middle East want is just to keep Libya in a permanent state of warfare or to keep Yemen in a permanent state of warfare, to keep Syria like that so that these are weak states that don't threaten other states as competitors for power in the region. And what I'm saying is, you know, that's one possibility and it's quite intuitive, but I also want to understand, is it possible that uh, through taking rational decisions based on their self-interest that don't have to do with wanting to keep a country in a state of conflict, it might nevertheless end up that way. And so what you see for these backers is that uh, they're choosing to continue to provide aid to the sides that are fighting the war, uh, but in the end, it's not productive in terms of uh, what they might like in an ideal world. It's just useful for them because the alternative to doing it makes them worse off. So in essence, we have a kind of second best situation. Nobody's getting what they want. Overall, the outcome is quite terrible but the decisions that are being made are nevertheless rational ones. Well, that's, that's really interesting. So why don't, we, um, uh, why, don't we, why don't we spare our Middle East listeners uh, the, uh, the rationalist theory just for a moment and go to Lebanon. And uh, tell, tell us how you use Lebanon to, to, to test and to play out this theory. 
and like like the field work that you did there and and everything which went into uh the the research for the book sure uh, what i what i should say to start is uh maybe why i got interested in studying the civil war in lebanon in the first place and this goes back really to graduate school um as i'm i'm sure you know when you're training as a political scientist um there's kind of this uh push to look at these abstract questions not look at the uh cases so much and then on the other hand when you start to read about particular countries um it turns out that most explanations you read are entirely about the ins and outs of that country so i read books about lebanon at some point early on in grad school and many of these books uh would basically tell you lebanon had this unique kind of civil war um all of these factors came together that we don't see in other countries and that's why it turned out the way it did and for me this was kind of an interesting challenge to the idea of comparative politics and international relations as i was learning them we were learning to make these comparisons we were learning that uh, we should be able to study a phenomenon around the world you know even if situations weren't exactly comparable to look at bits and pieces of them and so lebanon was kind of sitting there as an example where country experts were saying you can't do this but the training was saying yes this might be possible and i i found that a compelling reason to try to understand this war and so that's when i decided to do field research on lebanon um what what i wanted to do because of the topic of the research was to understand how the war operated from the perspective of the belligerents themselves so i decided to interview former commanders from the different armed groups that were fighting in lebanon on all sides of the war and to understand from their perspective what was really pushing their decision making in this war um and that was um something else that i found kind of missing from many studies of war whether it was from within uh middle eastern studies or from within political science uh there was kind of almost this normative angle to things that you know we we sympathize with the plight of civilians in war um therefore understanding why the quote unquote bad people do what they do in war is is not the priority but of course you're studying war and you want to understand how the people actually engaging in it make the decisions they make and so you went through and you interviewed a, a number of the commanders and of course you also did a lot of secondary research as well right and uh for the interviews uh what i decided to do was to try to prioritize in depth interviews so i would go back and interview the same person multiple times on multiple occasions and this would produce i often found a much better rapport than just having one encounter with someone so um you know the shortest interview i had was probably around 45 minutes the longest one was somewhere upwards of 3 hours and um i put together many many hours of interview material from this i think something of around 120 hours of interviews um going across these different factions and what that allowed me to do was instead of to ask um a kind of set questionnaire um about you know why 
why was the war like this? Or why did your group um, do X? I instead had them explain to me their life history uh, with the armed group they were fighting with and at key points in time to fill in the background on what was happening with their group, what pressures did they have, what priorities did they have. So in these interviews, I didn't ask direct questions about the research question of the book, but they allowed me to put together all this material that would uh, facilitate my analysis of these decision points during the war. So then tell us, like, what did, what did you find then? Like, walk us through why Lebanon became a quagmire. So what, what I found um, was that there were points in the war where um, you couldn't explain the decisions that uh, one side was making fully uh, with just reference to what you would normally think the strategic calculations were. I'll give you two examples. So um, after the uh, tripartite agreement, um, which was uh, in the mid-1980s, um, you had one side in the war, which um, just for the sake of brevity, I'll call this the pro-reform side in the war, backed by Syria. They're aiming to change the political status quo in Lebanon. And they've signed on to the tripartite agreement with the pro-status quo side. Um, and the pro-status quo side reneges on the agreement. So typically what you would expect is that uh, this would result in severe consequences for the side that reneges. Um, you know, the, the other side will want to punish them. They'll want to show that they need to come back to the agreement. And instead, you don't actually see this happen. Um, instead, you have this kind of low-level fighting not to take territory that continues um, for years into the conflict. And so when I interviewed people from different political parties, I wanted to find out, well, why, why was their group not interested in taking more territory? Or in, in contrast for the pro-status quo side, why weren't they worried about being attacked in that way? And what transpired was basically that they had, they had the support necessary to continue fighting, but taking territory was kind of going too far, would have imposed too high of a cost given what they were engaged in. And so we had, through that mechanism of substitution into non-territorial fighting, we had this entrapment in the war at that point in time. So in that sense, the theory helped me understand what was going on with the groups when otherwise this just seems like a very bizarre situation. Um, and this is repeated at other points in time. I don't want to um, go into too much detail, but uh, I can give you other examples um, that are in the book. I mean, maybe, maybe, one, maybe one more example might be useful just to kind of illustrate the way that the choices that these that these commanders had to make were made for the reasons that your theory predicted. Yeah. That, that, now that was one of the really interesting things I thought in the way you set up uh, set up the the book. So so another one um, is in the uh, early years of the war. This is in winter 1975 1976, 
And I found this a particularly fascinating time in the war because um, you look at these two sides as they're squaring off against each other, the pro-reform camp, the pro-status quo camp. And um, it really looks like the status quo camp is digging itself deeper and deeper uh, in terms of, pro of, of a problem. Uh, they are lacking manpower, they're lacking sometimes uh, weapons, and they are basically uh, dealing with a situation which they're fighting a series of parties on the left of the political spectrum, plus some radical Palestinian groups. Um, but the bulk of the Palestinian forces aren't fully committed to the fight yet, and they're very numerous. And these are the forces that are uh, controlled by the PLO. Um, and so, uh, in particular, Fatah is, is staying out of the fight at this point, but the radical PLO organizations are in it. So you would think, uh, from the perspective of the status quo camp, it would be very important to avoid getting Fatah's full commitment to the war. Uh, they have the uh, largest resources to bring to bear, and this at this point in the war could be disastrous for the pro-status quo camp. And basically they proceed to do the complete opposite of that. Um, so there are a, a series of battles and massacres that uh, basically push Fatah into committing all of its forces into this fight fully against the status quo camp. And then things look uh, really disastrous. Um, so you even have um, U.S. diplomatic cables going back and forth at the time uh, saying, you know, the situation looks pretty hopeless and it seems like, and here I'm quoting from one of these cables, it seems like the, the pro-status quo side is basically hoping for a deus ex machina to come and save them from the situation. So I tried to put this together with what I knew uh, from the groups and the pressures they were under and what struck me going through all the interviews was actually the absence of commentary on the dire situation they were in. Basically, respondents told me, multiple respondents, time and time again, that um, they saw their course of action as the only one available to them. And um, when we look at the full record, we know, of course, that this isn't the case. Uh, the Syrians are involved in negotiations at the time. Uh, there's, in fact, a document outlined uh, that basically uh, has the main principles of the Taif Accord of 1989 that is credited with ending the war. Uh, so it's not like all of these years of fighting actually resulted in a different agreement to end the war, and this kind of agreement is offered at the beginning. Uh, so then you start to think, okay, well, what gave them the freedom of action to not deal with what seemed like pretty hard and fast military realities on the ground? And basically what they were involved in um, earlier in 1975, before that winter, and through the winter and spring were a series of attempts, some of which were successful, to bring in foreign backing to support their cause. And so the, this pro-status quo side in the war uh, basically understood that they would be operating with additional resources if they could last a certain amount of time. And so they were 
making calculations as if they already had this backing. Um, and so once you understand that foreign dimension to it and how this was interacting with their decisions, you can see why they would actually behave the way they were behaving. They basically, uh, despite the military pressure they were experiencing, didn't believe that that was going to be um, binding on them because they were going to have more resources soon. They started actually getting those resources. And so they understood that uh, they didn't have to give in at a point in which otherwise everything else equal, we really would have expected to see that. Wow, that's really, it's really interesting. So one of the things which is really cool about the book is that you actually do uh, very sophisticated multi-method work where you have this qualitative analysis that you've done uh, with extensive field work. You also have a statistical analysis, which allows you to move beyond Lebanon and to kind of trace out the implications that you're finding elsewhere. Um, and, uh, but I think since we only have a few minutes left, I think I'll, I'll leave that for readers to, uh, to work through. Because I wanted to ask sure. you then, since you brought uh, the case of Syria up several times earlier on, um, maybe we could like take the last few minutes and just uh, walk through how your theory then would apply to Syria over the last decade. Was this a quagmire? I, I think there's a compelling case to be made that Syria uh, has experienced quagmire in the last decade. Um, what we know about civil war in Syria up to this point um, is that civil, war in, civil wars in Syria in the past have not lasted a long time. Uh, so the you might say the underlying conditions of the country don't suggest that it should have very long wars. And uh, what I actually do in that statistical analysis, and I'm not going to get into it, but I try to operationalize this concept of entrapment to say, maybe as a shorthand for it, we can identify wars that lasted longer than they otherwise should have. Right. And based on Syria's past experience, the current war is definitely one of these. Um, you, the war uh, that Hafez al-Assad's regime fought against the Muslim Brotherhood lasts something like three years, 1979 to 1982. You have a couple other instances in the 60s where the country almost has civil war. Um, those are resolved quite quickly. And so the idea of having a decade of war in Syria is, is quite unexpected. Then, then we can ask, well, how did that come to pass? And I think, again, um, there are key kinds of turning points in the war in Syria in which we see things like foreign assistance as a subsidy coming into play. Um, there's one point in the early years of the war where the Syrian government looks like it's not going to be able to pay salaries. And if that had actually come to pass, it would have been utterly disastrous for the government uh, and you can imagine um, that the scale of defections would have gone off the charts. Um, I don't know what kind of internal pressures it would have produced in the regime, but it would have been a game-changing kind of phenomenon. And instead, uh, Syria's, the Syrian government's foreign backers actually fly in cash so that the Syrian government can meet those obligations. Um, so the first part of it is that subsidy angle. And the second part of that is um, how was the Syrian government behaving perhaps differently with respect to its opponents 
given that it was anticipating getting that support from outside. And we have many, many examples on the other side of the war. The reason I led with this one of the government is that um, part of what the book is trying to do is to show that this really operates on both sides of a war. And I think often um, the main examples we hear about Syria or Yemen or Libya are ones of kind of how the rebel side is being uh, influenced by foreign powers. But this applies equally to governments. And in Syria... Obviously, on the rebel side, you have the whole dynamics of the Free Syrian Army, uh, basically, you know, a fighting force being formed, starting with defectors from the government's military, but being formed with a safe haven in Turkey, uh, plus the cash and arms that are coming in from outside. We have the Salafi and Jihadi groups also uh, kind of being formed in similar circumstances, either with... Uh, outside funding, a base of uh, kind of operations in Turkey or Jordan, uh, and even foreign fighters. And so most of what we see in the war is not really possible to understand without looking at this interaction between the foreign and domestic sides of the war. And no, so it's really interesting. And then this approach of looking at it in terms of the turning points and the understandings of the actors involved seems quite promising in terms of um, making sense of things which haven't necessarily made sense um, within other theoretical approaches. I, I hope that that's uh, something that Civil War studies uh, can, can take going forward. Um, you know, and I don't want to generalize too much uh, outside of that, but I think it's something even in Middle East politics that, you know, looking at uh, whatever phenomenon we're studying through the eyes of the decision makers, through the eyes of the main actors involved can really give us additional leverage. Um, and for me, there, there were some interesting dimensions to that that not only helped me understand what was happening in Lebanon or these other civil wars better, but actually um, developed more empathy for the participants in a civil war in the sense that um, this was a defining moment and a really terrible moment for everybody who was involved. This wasn't just uh, you know, what you might read about that armed groups are wreaking havoc on civilians and it's the civilians that are paying the price. Everybody who participates in these wars pays the price in some way. And uh, when you start to look at who's joining these armed groups um, and why they're joining, everybody's basically facing this terrible situation and having to make the best bad choice possible. And so I looking at things through the eyes of the warring parties helped me understand more about that too, that um, there are ways in which, um, unfortunately, if we start to imagine ourselves living through a civil war, uh, we can understand the choices that are being made, even by the fighters, even by the commanders, because if we really put ourselves in their shoes, uh, we can see that these are choices that uh, most people would actually make in the same way. Well, great. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Jonah Schulhofer wool of Leiden University about his brand new book, uh, Quagmire in Civil War, uh, just published by Cambridge University Press. Jonah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. Mm -hmm.